Open fine with me, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The paradox is when two things seem to be contradictory, and yet they both end up being true after all. And one of the functions of uh, authors who use paradoxes is to get us to see how two things that seem to have nothing to do with each other actually have everything to do with each other. My favorite example in the Bible is the beginning of 1 Corinthians when Paul says, If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. And so the way to be wise is to become a fool. And we say, how does that work? As we've been studying in Proverbs, it teaches us the crucial link between wisdom and humility. That the way to wisdom is to begin by acknowledging I'm not wise right now, and I need to listen. I think there's a big paradox at the heart of Philippians. Uh, I think it's well summarized in this great text about Jesus, which is really at the heart of the book. This is Philippians 2 and verse 6 to begin, thought by many to even be uh, a a hymn in the early Christian church. This is Philippians 2 and verse 6, when Paul says, Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a previous sermon, I summarized the message of this as being the way up is down. Is sort of the theme. That the way Jesus attained the exaltation he has at the end of this text is not through exalting himself, but rather through abjectly humbling himself. That the way to glory for Jesus was not through self-glorification. The way to glory for Jesus was humiliation on a cross. The way to gain glory was to give up glory. And I believe the rest of the the, the epistle is really an outworking of of this sort of paradox. And what I want to do this evening is to state it in a new way, which I think well captures the message of Philippians chapter 3. And that is, the way to gain is to give up. That's the paradox I want us to work with this evening. The way to gain is to give up. The way to get something is to let go of something. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what Paul says he's emulating. It's what he's urging the Philippians to embody. And I think it's at the heart, really, of all discipleship including ours. The way to gain is to give up. So I have three ways this works itself out in Philippians chapter 3. Number one, Paul says the way to gain the Savior is to give up status. We need to give up status in order to gain the Savior. This is Philippians 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is doing here is issuing a warning about a group of people often called Judaizers. Um, This was a group of Jewish Christians who acted as sort of counter-missionaries to Paul. What they would do is follow in his tracks. They'd go into these predominantly Gentile churches Paul had established in places like Philippi. And they would try to persuade young Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised first in order to be the true people of God. Now, for Paul, this isn't just a matter of they, they establish an unnecessary hoop 
to jump through. Um, to Paul, this is a renunciation of the gospel itself. To add something to the plan of salvation in this way is tantamount to saying, the gospel you've heard isn't enough. And Jesus isn't enough. And there's not enough saving power in the gospel as it was preached to you for the Gentiles. You still need this other thing. And so to say you still, need, you still lack something is a rejection of the gospel itself. Which is why Paul comes out in verse 2 with one of the sharpest insults he ever gives. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. An uncircumcised dog is what the Jewish apologists might refer to, to the, to the uh, pagans as. And he turns those epithets like dogs against the Jewish apologists, even calling what they're advocating for mutilating the flesh. Now, that word mutilate is a word similar to circumcision, but one that denotes something a little bit different. Not a, not a surgical procedure, but rather carnage, mutilation. Remember, it's what the prophets of Baal do when they're walking around the altar, cutting their bodies, marching around, trying in vain to get their God's attention. And essentially what Paul is saying by calling them the mutilation is what they're doing. Browbeating young Gentile Christians into being circumcised is no different from those pagans. Trying in vain to get God's attention through cutting their bodies, it'll work now about as well as it worked for the priests of Baal. And in verse 3, Paul says not only do they not understand the gospel, they don't even understand circumcision. In Deuteronomy, God told his people all along, the aim was not to just mark them out as his people on their bodies, but in their hearts. In Jeremiah, the prophet rebukes the people for being uncircumcised, not in their body. They were already circumcised in their body, but in their heart. They had minded the ritual, but they were still unconverted. Outwardly Jews, but pagans where it really mattered. In Colossians 2, Paul picks up this thread from the prophet saying this. <clears throat> saying that this is what God has done in Jesus. He says, in Christ you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And so verse 3 really says a remarkable thing to a Gentile church. He says to them, we are the circumcision. We are the fulfillment of God's vision in the law and the prophets. We are the true Israel. God has created a people who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast not in having a minor surgical, uh, surgical procedure performed, but boast in their relationship to God and His Messiah. Now, it's easy to imagine, perhaps, that Paul could have written something like verse 3 simply because he wasn't much of a Jew. You know, I, I, uh, there was a, a lecture I heard once uh, through a man who had grown up in a nominally Jewish home, uh, he was circumcised and all that, but in his, in his, in his words, uh, eating pork chops and bacon. So kind of Jewish, but really not really practicing. And at a certain point in his life, he became very interested in Jesus. And his more orthodox Jewish friends, his more observant Jewish friends said to him, you know, you can't give up Judaism because you never even practiced it. You don't even know what you're giving up, is what they told him. So maybe we could say the same thing about Paul. We could imagine those Judaizers, those counter-missionaries saying of him, I mean, he's giving up something that he doesn't even understand. That's the problem. He's redefining circumcision because he doesn't know anything about it. What follows in verse 4 is Paul giving the lie to that. This is verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So lest there be any mistaking, Paul points out he knows what he's talking about here. He has been a Jew of Jews. You could perhaps match his credentials, match his status as a Jew, but you could not surpass him. He lists here seven credentials of his Jewishness. And perhaps in that number seven, the the Jewish number of perfection, he is subtly indicating he had a perfect, complete kit of Jewish credentials. And so circumcised on the eighth day, of course, that's basic stuff. But then, not just an Israelite, but of the tribe of Benjamin. This is one of the two tribes that hadn't been absorbed into the nations, but, but from which the remnant had returned from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. Being from Benjamin meant Paul could lay claim to his certain lineage in a way most other Jews could not. He's not just an observant Jew either. He's a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, the strictest, most scrupulous sect of the Jews. To the possible charge, he's just a self-hating Jew who didn't really believe it in the first place. He says quite the opposite. I wasn't a self-hating Jew. I was a Christian-hating Jew. Paul was so zealous for God, he fought against the enemies of God, at least those he thought were enemies. That final credential there at the end of verse 6, when he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, is is not a claim of sinless perfection or anything like that, but a statement of his genuine Jewish discipleship. Whatever way you look at it, Paul is a possessor of greater status than anyone else in Judaism could imagine. There is no lack. There's no weak point in his bona fides. This list is here because Paul wants to show that he warns, when he warns against these counter-missionaries, pulling converts back into their mold, luring them into the pre-Jesus form of being Israel, what he's saying is, I know perfectly well what you're going back to because I myself came out of it. I inhabited that world, and I want you to see the radical move I made. That's verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What he says is, all that I could have put to my account as credit, all that stuff in verses 4 through 6, I now put on the other side of the ledger in verse 7. What I did count as profit, I now count as loss because of the Messiah. And here is where the paradox really kicks into gear. What he says is, when I gave up my status, I wasn't left empty-handed. I counted my Jewish bona fides loss because, verse 8, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus for my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I've given that up so that I can gain Christ. Paul is really just redrawing the picture of that, of that great passage in, in Philippians 2 we read in the beginning, where Jesus counts the privileges of divinity as rubbish, voluntarily giving up his status. And in giving it up, what does Jesus do? He only ends up gaining He gains us as his redeemed people. He regains the status as highly exalted above every name. And what Paul says is, I travel that same path. Just as Jesus counts the privileges of divinity as rubbish in order to gain us, 
Paul has counted as rubbish his status as a Jew in order to gain Christ. In both cases, what's gained makes what's given up worth it. And as Paul gives up his status as a Jew to gain Christ, the final goal those in Christ hope for is resurrection in verses 10 and 11, which has another give up to gain paradox. That is, we share in his sufferings, he says, to attain the resurrection of the dead. We're willing to give up our comfort now in order to gain ultimate comfort in eternity. We give up our lives now in order to gain new resurrection life. So, so Paul has written these verses to head off this group of counter-missionaries he's worried will soon come and upset the faith of these brethren. Their mission is to bring the church back into the pre-Messiah form of Judaism, to insist Gentiles need to be circumcised. The problem, he says, is not just adding a hoop to jump through. The problem is making something other than one's relationship to Jesus your badge of covenant status. Paul says, I'm someone who had every Jewish merit badge you could have, and when I discovered the Messiah, I realized that those were never meant to be merit badges at all. They were meant to be signposts leading me in the direction of Jesus, and I found him. When I discovered him, I gave up everything in order to gain him and to gain the resurrection. Paul says, I gave up my status to gain the Savior. Which brings us to verse 12, where Paul says, I gave up complacency to give up maturity. Now, to this point, what Paul has really emphasized to the Philippians is the beginning and the ultimate end of the disciples' walk. The beginning foundation, the identity of Jesus we come to understand, and then the end there in verses 10 and 11, the resurrection. There's a true apprehension of the surpassing worth of Jesus at the beginning of our walk, and there's the ultimate goal of resurrection at the end of our walk. But the question remains, what are we supposed to be doing in between our baptism and our funeral? Or in between our baptism and the second coming? That's verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. When you get your beginning foundation and your end goal squared away, what you're about in between, Paul says, is pressing on to maturity, exerting effort to grow, learning how to think. There's really an athletic metaphor running through here, verse 14, pressing on toward the goal for the prize. There's a finish line ahead, and the disciple's life is spent straining toward that line. You know, when you're running a marathon and you just spend all your time stewing over whether you got mile one right, you're not going to run miles two through 20 very well, are you? Forgetting what lies behind, verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead. That's what we're about. And there's a hint about why Paul is needing to emphasize these things. And what I read is sort of a subtle, sarcastic remark in verse 15 when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. I think this way is the way of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. In other words, true Christian maturity consists in knowing you haven't quite arrived at full maturity yet. Which is a clue, perhaps, there were some in Philippi who believed that now that they were baptized, they had basically arrived. That they were complete. There was no more effort to exert, no more growth to be had. 
We had everything we need, and now we could go about our lives the way we want. And so what he says in verse 15 is, if you think you're a perfectly mature Christian, the only thing you really show yourself to be is immature. If you acknowledge that you haven't gotten there and are exerting effort, that acknowledges you're on the path to true maturity. And so I acknowledge I haven't arrived yet, Paul says, but I press on trying to lay better hold of the one who has laid hold of me. You know, when you're born again, you're a new person. But do you know what we call a person who's just been born? A baby. You are a person, a new person, but also you are an infant person. Now he says that you've been born again. It's time to exert effort and energy to grow into maturity. Verse 15, he says, we must learn to think maturely. We must learn to take honest stock of our shortcomings. And perhaps then is another sarcastic barb at the end of verse 15 when he says, if in anything you think otherwise. In other words, if you disagree, immature people, uh, rather, if you disagree that mature people admit their immaturity, if you disagree with that, God will reveal that to you also. In Paul's world, people, pretty much everyone believed in special divine revelation. The Jews, of course, believed in the revelations and visions given to the prophets. The pagans would visit oracles in search of special guidance from the gods. Paul may be sarcastically suggesting at the end of verse 15 that if any of these super mature Christians who don't need to expend any more effort, if they get a revelation, the content of that revelation will be to reveal just how immature they are. If you get a revelation, I already know what it's going to say, and it is that you are immature, because that's the only message you need to hear right now. Verse 16 steps back and summarizes where we are. Only let us, let us hold true to what we have attained. He just warned Christians who think they're already at the finish line, don't fool yourself into thinking you're much further along than you actually are. But now in verse 16 he says... Don't let anyone else fool you that you have to go all the way back to the start either. Verse 16 is pointing back to those dogs of verse 2. Those calling into question the beginnings of their walk with God as they urge circumcision on people. Verse 16 says, let's take proper stock of where we are. Don't act like you're already at the finish line. You're not. Give up your arrogant complacency. You still have maturity to develop. But by the same token, don't let anyone tell you you have to go back to the very start. Hold true to what you have attained, which is a genuine saving relationship with Christ. Which brings us to number three, third and finally. Paul says, we may need to give up Rome in order to gain the resurrection. This is verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul offers himself here as a model of discipleship. Emulate me, which is, as I reflect on uh, what it would mean for a preacher to say that, it's quite a bold thing to say, uh, something preachers today, myself included, don't say nearly as much as Paul does. Look at me as the example of everything I'm talking about. But remember, churches like Philippi are full of first-generation Christians who grew up in paganism. They have never had modeled for them living the way Jesus called people to live. They had no real model in their culture of, say, faithful monogamous marriage, or forgiving those who wronged you, or pursuing humility as a virtue, all of these are very different from Greco-Roman ideas of virtue. Well, they had some virtues right, but those would be a few in which there was, no, there was no real concept of. Paul says, look at me. I'm doing it. 
And you can look at my life and see how it's done. But there's also something of a puzzle in, in asking Philippi to imitate Paul. Because the main thing Paul's been talking about is about how he's renounced his status as a prominent Jew in the first section. But of course, most of these Philippians are not Jews. Almost all of them are coming out of idolatry, living pagan lifestyles. They were, they were Roman citizens, many of them loyal Roman citizens. Perhaps some of them were former Roman soldiers who had killed in the name of Caesar, willing to die in the name of Caesar. So how could they imitate Paul? Because he gives up his Jewish status to gain Christ. That's not what they're being asked to do. And the answer to that puzzle is given in the last few verses of this chapter. They won't give up their status as Jews in order to gain Christ, but they may give up their status as Romans in order to gain Christ. That's what these verses are about. So Paul places himself as a model to imitate in verse 17, because in verse 18, here are the kinds of models around them. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. I think who Paul is talking about here are licentious pagans. Paganism was practically devoid of ethical content. We talked about this on Wednesday when we were thinking about Jonah. Zeus... He wanted his sacrifice. He didn't much care if you had a mistress because he himself had a few. Poseidon didn't call you to love your enemies because he was busy smiting his own enemies. Pagan society was full of people who lived in the complete opposite way of Jesus. People who treated their own bellies, their own appetites, their basest desires as the God they served. They treated shameful things as if they were glorious. They lived earthbound lives without thought to the will of God in heaven. And so Paul is teaching Philippi to look with new eyes at the lifestyles that they're surrounded by and used to participate in. He says that way of living that used to seem normal to you is dehumanizing and corrupt and destructive and hostile to the cross. It is Jesus who showed us how to live. Imitate him. Imitate me as I imitate him. And so 18 and 19, Paul urges them to give up the lifestyle of pagan Rome in order to gain something better. And I think beginning in verse 20, he urges them to give up unreserved loyalty to Rome in order to gain the resurrection. This is verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I think these are deeply subversive verses. You have to understand, Rome, uh, rather, Philippi is a deeply Roman town. Um, it was made an official Roman colony by Augustus Caesar, uh, granted all the privileges of citizenship to the inhabitants. Uh, the city itself was laid out as a miniature uh, reproduction of Rome. That If you would know the streets of Rome, you would know the streets of Philippi. Caesar himself had a residence in Philippi where he stayed. Um, regular parades and triumphs took place through the streets. As citizens of Rome, these people on the Greek peninsula were expected to bring the culture of Rome to northern Greece, the values, the, the civilization of Rome to northern Greece. And so to a group of Roman citizens, Paul says, remember where your true citizenship lies. Because your mission has changed from bringing the culture and values of Rome to northern Greece 
to bringing the culture and values of heaven to northern Greece. You are no longer on mission to make Philippi a colony of Rome. You are on mission to make Philippi a colony of heaven. Your body is not for Caesar or for Zeus's use anymore. It's for Jesus, who will one day redeem and resurrect your body to be like his resurrected body. There's also lots of language here that's subversive of Caesar. Verse 20, Savior and Lord are both titles uh, Caesar claimed. The idea, verse 21, that someone would have the power to subject all things to himself, that he would be the boss of everything and everyone, was something only Caesar claimed to be able to do in that world. But Paul says, you don't belong to him anymore. You belong to the one to whom all things belong. I want you to listen again to the last part of that great Christ hymn in Philippians 2 and verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, including the name of Caesar. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Jesus, not Caesar, is the true king who is worthy of worship. What he's saying is give up ultimate allegiance to Caesar to gain a real king. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, this verse really belongs with all that we've studied. It's a summary of Paul's encouragement to Philippi. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In the beginning of the chapter, he urged them not to be blown one way by the Judaizers. He said, I've given up what they're offering to gain Christ. So don't you give up Christ in order to gain what they're offering. That's going the wrong direction. And now he has urged them not to be blown the other way, by Rome, either pagan Rome or patriotic Rome. As Paul gave up his status in Israel to gain Christ, these Philippians may need to give up their status in Rome to gain Christ. They may suffer for it. Many of them will. They may be ostracized for not burning incense to Caesar. But nevertheless, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So this, I think, is the big idea of Philippians 3, the way to gain is to give up. Jesus gave up the privileges of divinity in order to gain us and to be given the name that is above all names. Jesus gave up in order to gain. Paul gave up his status in Israel in order to gain Jesus in his resurrection. Paul urges the Philippians to give up their status in Rome to gain Jesus in the resurrection. And the only question we could ask at the end of this study is what will we give up to gain Christ? There is no earthly privilege, no honor, no status, no perk worth clinging to if it means alienation from Jesus. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a man who finds a pearl of great price. And because he understands the immense value of that pearl, he sells everything he has to get that one thing. There is a man who gave up in order to gain. Because the thing gained, if it's valuable enough, is worth giving up anything and everything to get it. And Paul is trying to tell us that Jesus, the gospel, is just that sort of thing. There's nothing not worth giving up to get that one thing. And so the question I ask you as as we uh, leave off this evening is, what are you giving up? What is it in your life that's getting in between you and your God, between you and the Jesus who died to save you? Maybe there's someone here that needs to make a decision once and for all that I'm going to stop letting things separate me from the God who's trying so hard to save me. If there's anyone who needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing.
Receive a sinful man.